We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hello, my name is Nick, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is June 8th, 2021. I guess I'll kind of get into a little bit about where things started, like uh, what it was like, what what happened, and what it's like now. So, um, you know, growing up, I was born to a mother who was 15 years old. So she was still a child herself. My father was 17. My my mother was still living with her mother, my grandmother. My mom was an addict at, at a very young age as well. So I was already not born into to the best of circumstances uh, for success. Luckily, my grandmother was there, was an active part of my life because my mother was still living under her roof. But early on, my mom really didn't want anything to do with me. So my grandmother was taking on more of the role of my parent. My grandmother and grandfather are from Greece. My grandfather has a business here in the States. So when he came here, he opened up uh, a bar, actually, and he did pretty well. Uh, so we lived in an upper middle class neighborhood, went to Catholic school at a young age. I was in Catholic school for elementary school, and things were, were pretty normal. My uncle lived in the basement. Uh, he he would, uh, I guess what now I know what the smell was. He would always be in the basement with all his friends and I would know that it smelled weird down there. And, you know, it was him down there smoking pot. Alcohol was very much normalized in our house because my grandfather owned a bar. My grandmother was literally the barmaid there. Uh, so I remember going down to the bar with my grandmother uh, during the day shift. I couldn't go at nighttime because it a, it's a strip club. So during the day, my grandmother worked day shift. She would take me down there. And I remember I remember being so little down at the bar that I was standing on the pool tables, you know, rolling the balls to play pool with my, my grandfather. And I remember uh, still pretty vividly, being even being that young, uh, my grandmother kind of running the show back there. We'd have guys come across from the Coca-Cola factory and would – you know, get their drink at lunch or what have you. And my grandmother's kind of back here, just, you know, like I said, running the show. And uh, I still remember the smell of that bar. So again, that's just, it was just very normal. There was nothing wrong in my eyes with drinking. Looking back now, hindsight being 2020, I realized that a lot of my family was drinking alcoholically. I didn't know that at the time. My first drink of beer, I remember being in that basement. My uncle was down there with his buddies playing a game called quarters. I had to bounce the quarter into the into the glass of beer and if you got it in there you, you drank the beer and i remember wanting to do that my uncle letting me bounce that quarter and I, sure enough i got it in there he gave me a drink of that beer and uh you know i, I liked the taste of it immediately um I, I don't know if that made me an alcoholic or not but what's weird is that i don't remember my first drink of water my first drink of milk orange juice nothing but i remember my first drink of a beer <laughs> so whatever whatever that means uh, my mom and my dad ended up splitting up. I I don't know what reason or why any of that. So um, then my grandmother and grandfather also ended up splitting up 
Well, my grandmother on a barmaid's wages was unable to uh, keep us in the same neighborhood that we were in. We ended up having to move down into the uh, projects in Claremont, Baltimore City. My mom ended up meeting another guy and then moving me and her and him down to Waldorf, Maryland. Uh, this guy, I don't think he cared for me too much. Uh, he abused me. There was lots of lots of abuse as a child. Um, my mom ended up having two other two other children with him, both girls. So I have two half sisters, and I don't know if it was because I wasn't his child or what, but I mean, the guy beat me for everything. Not being able to say my ABCs, you know, putting on my T-shirt backwards. I mean, just just you name it, uh, he beat me for it. It all came to a head one time. My mom was not at home. I bit my sister over a snack cake, and he proceeded to beat me. He beat me so bad. And when I came to, he basically just gave me some more juice, gave me another snack cake, told me to go outside, and if anybody asked, to tell them that I fell down. And so, of course, that's exactly what I did. Luckily for me, the people that I told I fell down, they didn't believe me. They took me inside. and uh, called the police. He was arrested. Uh, long story short, we went to court for all of this. My mom was given the opportunity to, you know, get her life together, get off of drugs, have a place for us to live, have a job, you know, kind of have things squared away in order to keep custody of me. And she decided rather than do those things to get the money to bail that guy out of jail and then take off with me um, somewhere further down in Southern Maryland. So that went on for a while until uh, one day in November, my grandmother, well, I was in a house. I was in a house. I was in a T-shirt and underwear. I was eating cereal out of a bowl with my, with my hands. And I don't know where my mom was or, or her boyfriend, uh, but I was in there with some other people and a bunch of other kids. And uh, next thing I you know, there was a knock at the door and uh, three ladies come into the house. One with her hand in a bag and uh, she said she was here to get her grandson. So at that point, uh, that lady, another lady came and scooped me up off of the floor and they proceeded to uh, kidnap me at gunpoint. My grandmother, my aunt Stacy and her best friend, Pat. Uh, so they took me back up here to Baltimore, some Uncle Charlie's house. And um, we I had lice and, um, you know, obviously just had the clothes on my back. And um, from that point on, I was living with my grandmother up here. She got emergency custody of me, ended up winning full custody legal custody of me and raised me since I was about six years old. So growing up, we weren't rich by any means. Uh, I never did without. Uh, I had always what I needed, um, but there were plenty of times, you know, we had our gas and electric shut off regularly. You know, we, you know, maybe ate what was really available. wasn't really what we wanted to eat, but had to eat what we, what we had. And, but we got by, you know, and, um, I did really well uh, with my grandmother. I always did well in school. I was always in advanced classes. I was told my whole life I was how smart I was. And um, later in the story, I'll tell you how that come back to kind of bite me in the butt. But yeah, it told me I was, I was so smart. And I was, you know, I was really good at school. It was one thing I, I thrived in. Living in the inner city of Baltimore uh, was a little rough. We moved a lot. So it meant that I went to a lot of different schools. And uh, most of the time when I would go to these schools, I was the only uh, white kid in my class. And um, I don't know if it was a rite of passage when you start there, kind of just to test you out when you get there. But I had to learn very quickly that 
you know, the start of a new school year meant that I was going to probably have to get into some fights and, and defend myself. So that's what I did. So, but I still managed to do well in school. So, um, it wasn't until up until, let's see, my grandmother, when I finally got to high school, my grandmother decided she was uh, going to move us out to the county. Uh, she said she didn't want me going to city high schools, but I'm not really sure why she wouldn't have. I, I was accepted into two really good Baltimore City high schools, Polytechnic and Mervo. You have to actually be accepted to those. So it wasn't like I was going to, you know, the regular schools. I think my grandmother just really just wanted to move to the county. She had an opportunity to purchase a home through through HUD. Um, and so we moved out to a place called Essex in Baltimore County. And um, I still did well there. I went to school out there. Uh, I, I went started high school. I made varsity basketball in ninth grade. I didn't play much, not until 10th grade. I, I started in 10th grade, but ninth grade, we had a pretty good varsity squad, so I didn't get to play too much. And um, I pretty much stayed to myself when, it, when I was outside of school uh, because the neighborhood that we lived in, uh, the guys that lived in that neighborhood, I knew them from school and I knew what they were all about. And I just really wanted nothing to do with drugs or alcohol because of like my mom. I resented my mom for kind of just leaving me and and and, and the drugs and the alcohol, how it tear tore us apart. And so, yeah, I really didn't want anything to do with any of that. And but my grandmother, she kept on me about having you know, I have to get out and I have to make friends and I can't just stay in the house all the time. And, you know, she was really just on my case about it. And I, I remember telling her flat out, I told her, look, if you want me to go out here and make friends with the guys in this neighborhood, like it's not they're not the best people to be hanging out with. You're, you're pretty much telling me to go make friends with people who are you know, doing drugs and, and, and drinking and things like that. And um, but so I did. I went out, I made a couple friends in the neighborhood. And for a while I was able to be strong. And when they would ask me, you know, if I wanted to wanted anything, any pot or any, any alcohol they were drinking, I, I said, no, I was really, really focused on basketball. I like lived and breathed basketball at this point in my life. So I remember one day I was actually at, at behind an elementary school, I was shooting around basketball and the, the my, couple of my buddies, about three of them were smoking a joint underneath the, the doorway of the school there. And, um, they asked me if I wanted any, and just like normal, I, I said no. And um, after a little bit longer, I, I still to this day do not know why, or there's no rhyme or reason to it. But they asked me again, and for whatever reason, I said I said yeah, and I tried it. And they were so shocked that I tried it that they were like, "Here, you just finished the rest of it." That was my first encounter with with anything, and it did not take long. Uh, it was like right after that, it, the floodgates opened. Next thing you know, we're drinking, we're, we're smoking, we're doing the things that you do you know, as teenagers in high school, you know, um, wasn't nothing wrong with it in my eyes at that point, just doing what, what, what the kids do, right? My grandmother still worked at that bar in the city. So that meant that Wednesday through Saturday, my grandmother would leave the house at about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon to get down to her shift at the bar. And she would stay until close. So the bar closed at two. By the time she closed everything out and all that, got all the way back out to the county, you're talking, you know, it was 3.30. So from pretty much half the day, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon until say three, 3.30 in the morning, Wednesday through Saturday, I had no adult supervision. So my house very quickly became the place to be. Uh, so all of the neighborhood kids, you know, as soon as soon as three o'clock came, it was like clockwork. They knew when she was gone and, and they'd come tapping on my basement windows. My room was in the basement. And that's what we did every night. They'd bring over. We'd have 
40 ounces and things like that. And we'd smoke our weed and drink our beer. And I'd hide them in a trash bag behind the, the washer and dryer until trash day came and take them out there clanging. And, and that's what I did. And my life progressively just got worse very, very rapidly. It did not progress slowly. I I was went from just smoking a little, you know, hitting that joint behind the school to drinking daily. Like I felt like I, I, when I drank, I just felt more like myself, I guess. Like I, I could I could talk to the girls more. I was just more personable. I was more outgoing and and I, I thought I was tough too. You know, I thought I was tough when I would uh, when I would drink. So I very quickly started selling drugs, started stealing cars, just doing absolutely all the opposite of what I had been doing, what I'd been working so hard to uh, like have good grades and do well at sports and all of that just went by, fell by the wayside. And it all came to a head in about in 11th grade. We were in the basement like normal, get a knock at the window, go upstairs. My, this, on this occasion, though, my grandmother is not gone. She's upstairs. She was sick. She's all the way on the top floor in her room. I'm in the basement. Somebody knocks on the window and then they're knocking on the door and I don't want them to wake my grandmother up. So I run up the steps and go to the front door, open the door. And when I open the door, somebody comes in screaming Rah! and puts a something, stick something in my stomach. And at first I'm just telling them to be quiet because my grandmother's home. But when I look down, there's a shotgun in my stomach. And um, one of the guys says, it's all over now. Uh, so they, they, Forced me to the basement for whatever reason. Again, to this day, I don't I don't know what happened, but they they foretold me to get in the basement. I run down in the basement thinking they're right behind me, but they're not. I don't know why they like stopped up in the upstairs, but I was able to go downstairs, tell my friends somebody's in the house with a mask and they have a gun. They thought I was joking around. I grabbed my girlfriend. We run out of the back basement door. We stand out there waiting for my friends to come. And next thing you know, I hear, I guess the guys with the gun came downstairs, start yelling at my friends. So we take off down and run down the alley. And, um, go call the police. My grandmother, needless to say, was not happy about that. She ended up coming down and getting the gun pointed at her. She foiled whoever was in the house's plan at that time, but she was absolutely not happy with me. She said she didn't have to deal with this kind of stuff with my uncle or with her, with my mother. And uh, she pretty much told me I had to get out and go live with my uncle in Hartford County. My uncle is that same uncle that smoked the pot in the basement. So I, uh, that's all he did, smoke pot, and he drank a lot every day. And now I am not in school because I, I dropped out of school. I said, I'm just going to go get my GED. And so now I, I went and got my GED, and now I'm just, I'm like 17 years old, and I'm just, you know, no job, no nothing. I'm living with my uncle who drinks every day and smokes, and that was kind of what I was doing. Again, still not doing anything with myself. So at 18, uh, because my life was really not doing, yeah, I wasn't doing anything, I just up and one day decided, you know what, I got an idea. I'm going to fix this. And so I decided I was going to join the United States military. And so I went down to the recruiting station and I got information on all four branches. I didn't speak to one recruiter. I just got information on all the branches, everything they had to offer from each of them. And I took all those pamphlets and stuff home. And the one that had one, one of the branches had a, a VHS tape in their thing, had this like fancy packaging on it and all that. And it was the Marine Corps. And th this video, when I watched it, after I was done watching that video, I was like, man, this is the ticket right here. I am going to go and be one of the few in the proud. I'm going to wear those awesome uniforms. Like I, I picked the Marine Corps because I literally was like, well, if they're the hardest one and I do that, I could have done any of the other ones. Right. And I really like the dress blues. And so that was what I was going to do. I was like, you know, what? I'm going to go in here. I'm going to go see the world. I'm going to go blow some things up and do some obstacle courses. And this is going to be great. 
and uh, get some, you know, some some discipline and things that I yeah, might need that might help me out to have a better life. And so that's what I did. I joined the Marine Corps. Well, I was due, signed up, ready to go, waiting in the delayed entry program to ship out to boot camp. My ship out date was October 10th, 2000, sorry, 2001. And um, if you know anything about 2001, you know that in 2001, about a month prior to my ship out date, 9-11 happened. So very quickly, that idea of going and seeing the world and doing all these cool things and just kind of getting away from Baltimore and regrouping um, really took it on a different perspective. I started, I realized very quickly that I was probably going to end up seeing combat over this. So when I went to boot camp, needless to say, the reason I'm still able to sit here and speak to you today is because I, I paid attention in boot camp, paid really good attention. I do really good in structure. I, I ended up becoming a squad leader while in boot camp. I got promoted right out of boot camp. Came home, was given uh, recruiter's assistance for two weeks, went around to malls and car shows, stuff like that, and dress blues and, you know, as a Marine. And then went down to Marine combat training, did well there, became a squad leader, got promoted again. So already I hadn't even made it to the fleet Marine Corps, and I'm, I'm in E3, doing, doing really well. So I'm like, all right, well, so this isn't going so bad. You know, maybe I won't get sent over there. And they shipped me out to San Diego, and San Diego, I'm out there, and Man, you know, I'm not of legal drinking age, but, you know, we're Marines and we're in San Diego. It was it was the best. You know, uh, ladies love the guys out and out there and, and especially the Marines. And I mean, we party, we drank and we were having a good time. And I, I thought this is this was it. So they gave me orders to go to Iraq. And then, uh, yeah, things got real. Uh, they sent me to Iraq. Uh, my first first combat tour they attached me to an infantry division or infantry unit. I'm sorry, because of um, my MOS was a 2111. It was a small arms repair. So I was an armor. I fixed weapons and they attached me to an infantry unit. So, yeah, so I did two combat tours over there. Um, I don't put too much of that in my story. A lot of things I just don't like to talk about. But that is part of my story. Um, when I got back. Uh, there was nothing you could tell me. I got back, you know, I'm the few and the proud of the Marines. I come back from two combat tours, still alive, all my limbs, right? Just the most arrogant, egotistical. My ego was as, you know, as big as the biggest building, I tell you. There was, I was indestructible, right, at this point, in my mind. And that was my downfall. So I'm this smart, you've know, been told I was smart all my life. I'm smart. I'm this, you know, got this ego and this pride and you know, I, I was too tough for, for therapy and for medicine and all that kind of uh, PTSD. There's no such thing as PTSD, right? Um, you know, because mental health to me, uh, growing up, we didn't know anything about mental health, right? Like if somebody said you're depressed, you just you know, told them to cheer up. You know, um, I, I now know that there's a lot more to mental health now. <laughs> um, but at that point, it was not anything serious to me. And I just felt thought I was different. It wasn't going to affect me. I mean, that wasn't the case. Uh, it, it did. And I decided rather than using the tools that were given to us to just use vodka instead. Vodka seemed to work. And I liked I liked drinking. So I drank vodka and, and beer. And, I, and, you know, and I managed to, to do that on just the weekends for a really long time. Uh, actually, I got back in 05. So in 2005, until my son was born in 2011. So for about a good six years, I was a pretty much just a weekend drinker. But when I drank on the weekends, I mean, I drank. I drank for effect. I drank to get really drunk, as drunk as I could. And I drank whatever was in sight. Um, so I didn't really, I mean, I had preferences, but whatever was there, that's what I drank. My son was born in 2011. 
uh, broke up with his mom when he was three months old. She was an angry drunk. We both drank a lot, but she was an angry drunk. She liked to break things and be violent. And uh, coming from the background that I had been in, I did not want my son growing up in that type of environment. We split up. And now what I've learned through a lot of therapy, I'm going to kind of jump forward to what I've learned about exactly that moment in my life is that really shifted things in a whole different way because now here's my son and me, right? It's kind of like my grandmother and me. It was just the two of us, right? And my whole life growing up, right, with it just being my grandmother, I learned that I attached to other people's families. So I would go and I would find a best friend and I'd stay the night at their house a lot. And then I would end up moving in with them, right? I would literally move in with my friends. We would convince their parents that it was just a better option for me and they would love me. And they, so I'd go in and I would literally attach myself into this family and I would have this instant family. So I'd have the mom and the dad and sister and my friend would be like my brother. And, and that's what I did. So now that I'm, my son is, I broke up with his mom at this young age, right? He is now, now I have to find a family, right? I don't want him to experience the same thing that I experienced growing up. And that started this long, unhealthy um, process of me. My drinking intensified. I started to become a daily drinker. I was drinking vodka, um, at least a pint a day, just to kind of, to get by and function normally. So I started to find these relationships. I would, I would look for these relationships where, and this, it's going to sound so terrible, but it was, it really was terrible. You know, I'd find uh, a girl who had children close in age if, or, or at least just younger that uh, had their own home. They had a good career. They had good credit. They had all, had all the things, quite frankly, that I didn't have at this point. And I would just attach ourselves into that, into that. And I would just be in, have this instant family. And then that wouldn't work out because they would get tired of me and my drinking. And, and I didn't really want to be with them anyway for the right reasons. And so that, you know, one, one girl that messed up. So then I get in another relationship and this one seems to be pretty good, but, you know, uh, we're together. I found her for the wrong reasons again, but we, I'm living out in Perry hall which is a really nice upper middle class area. Uh, she's got a townhouse. We move into the townhouse. Her child is close in age to my my son. She's got a good career. At this point, I found a good career. I found out I was really good at sales. I get into sales. I'm, I'm, I'm making six figures. I'm living in this upper middle class neighborhood. We got our townhouse. I got a garden on the side that I built. I coached my son's soccer. Mind you, all the while, I mean, I'm drinking uh, daily, all day. But from the outside looking in, if you were just looking at me and didn't know that I was drinking, you would say that I had everything going for me. Like it was living like, you know, the way that you're supposed to the house, the car, the career, that you go on trips and doing whatever I wanted to do. But on the inside, I am dying. I'm dying. About two years into that relationship, I know that I don't want to be with this person. But now I am so invested. I've created such a, like my son is in the best school district in the county that we live in. I'm, I'm working this job. I got, we got the house, all the things I just explained. And I don't want to give those things up. And so I won't say that she's the reason that I drank, but she did not, that situation did not help my drinking habits. And it spiraled and got so bad that I ended up losing all of that. I lost the, the job, the six figure job. Uh, and I went into this spiral of 
looking for jobs, pretending to look for jobs, leaving and going on fake interviews or going and hanging out in a, in a, a library parking lot and just drinking all day. I would have a bottle that I would keep in the, in the kitchen that she could see. And then I'd have all the other bottles that I hid around the house or, or on my person that I would be drinking all the while. So it only looks like I'm only drinking this little bit once I got home. But meanwhile, I'm, I'm getting hammered and my health is starting to, to, to just deteriorate and get worse. We're fighting a lot. My car is now up for repossession. My tags have expired. I have no car insurance on the, on the car. I'm, I'm a nervous wreck every day. One, to, to get in and even drive anywhere in it, take my son to school or, or anything that he has going on. I'm afraid that the next morning they're going to wake, I'm going to wake up. It's going to be gone. They're going to have repossessed it. I don't have the money because I don't have a job to cover and pay for any of it. We're fighting about that. I mean, it's just, just, just chaos, just absolute anxiety and chaos all the time. Just every to get to sleep was impossible. And then I'd be up first thing in the morning because I had to have that drink to stop the, the sweats and the, and the shakes. And it's just just terrible. Finally, I decided to come up with this great idea because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to outthink it. I'm going to I'm going to think my way out of this situation. So I'm going to go up to Pennsylvania and stay with my uncle. I'm going to get away from Baltimore. I'm going to you know, go, you know, dry out out there, get away from the alcohol. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to find work out there. They'll never find the car out there. I'll find a job. I'll get the car squared away and I'll get everything good and I'll, I'll get myself together and then I'll come back. So I went out there with like maybe 200 bucks and uh, I couldn't find any work where they were. There was not a lot of work out that way. My uncle drinks daily. <laughs> the other uncle out in Pennsylvania, he drinks daily. It's kind of a family thing here, apparently. Um, I'm drinking all his booze. I've spent my two hundred dollars on booze. I'm now stealing booze from the from the the little local like it's like a gas station that sells like little just random liquor in it. Uh, I'm stealing that to to drink because if I don't, I am up all night literally having hallucinations i'm i'm thinking that there's a radio on with this old time like sportscaster on it like it was it was really bad i was going through i thought i was going crazy finally i couldn't take it anymore i decided i was going to come back to baltimore and i get down to baltimore and i have burned my bridges the fiance that i had that i was living with she says i can't come back until i get myself together so i literally uh, my son goes to stay with his mom uh, i have what I can pack into my 2012 Hyundai Sonata. I can't stay with my son's mom because the last time I did that, when we were in an argument, I tried to fight her boyfriend. So uh, when I was drunk, we were all drunk, but so I burned that bridge. Couldn't do that again. My grandmother who raised me, she's now in a nursing home. She couldn't help me in any way. Like I really, I just had literally nobody. Um, so I, I found myself homeless. I was living out of my car, sitting in a park Walmart parking lot, um, never in a million years would I've ever imagined that that is where my life would be is in a Walmart parking lot with all my belongings. I could fit inside of that car, those dress blues, those Marine dress blues on the hanger in the back seat. That smart guy, that smart guy I was told he was smart his whole life. Right. Um, that's where all my smarts got me. I'm sitting in this parking lot with a car with no, with expired tags, no insurance up for repossession, no place to call my home. And I realized very quickly that I didn't do homeless well. Uh, I was running out. I had no money. I couldn't drive the car around because, one, like tags are expired. Two, uh, that cost money. I'd, I'd be burning the gas up. 
So I'm running out of funds for alcohol. I'm worried I'm going to get somebody's going to wonder why I'm just always in this parking lot. And so I Googled homeless shelters and it takes me to a place called Westside Men's Shelter, Catonsville, Maryland. Um, so I proceed to drive there. I'm, I'm drunk. I drive there. So let me paint a picture for you. I drive into this rehab facility, this 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 area where this rehab is. And there's all these little roundabouts you got to go around to get all the way to the center. And uh, I'm drunk. And so here I am. I'm driving in. I go to go around one of those roundabouts. I hit the curb. I bust the tire. So here I am. Now I'm drunk. It's starting to get dark. I'm putting this this donut on my on my car. And so here all my smarts have got me. Now what, I'm homeless, right? And here I am pulling into the homeless shelter with the donut on my car, no car insurance, expired tags, right? Uh, no money, and I'm drunk. And the intake lady says, you've been drinking today? I said, yeah, yes, ma'am. And she says, okay, you, have you ever, ever thought about going to treatment? I said, well, no, 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 I don't need to go to treatment. It's, I don't have that kind of problem. I just, I need, I need to just kind of regroup here. I knew that they were going to let me have a bed for me to sleep in. I could take a shower. They were going to feed me meals, you know, so I, I felt like, okay, here's where I'm going to regroup. I'm going to get my bearings. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to just come up with my plan here, right? Cause that smart guy is going to figure it out, right? It's just that ego and that pride of mine was, is going to kill me. But this is what I thought I was going to do. I was going to do that. Well, um, what I didn't realize is that I didn't know that alcohol detox can kill you. And so I was uh, at a homeless shelter. They are not safely medically detoxing me. So here I am on the top. This 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 shelter, mind you, is like a gymnasium full of these metal rickety bunk beds. And on the top of this, on the ceiling, there is just all these fluorescent lights. And those lights stay on 24 hours a day. They don't go off at nighttime. Not they stay on. So all night long, and I'm on the top bunk with one of those lights right above me, and I'm trying to cover my head with the sheet to cover the light so I can try to sleep. But while I'm doing that, I'm profusely sweating because I'm, I'm withdrawing and I have a sheet over my head. So that's not working. I have to keep getting down off of the, the, the bunk. And as I do, I'm, I'm shaking the whole thing. The guy on the bottom probably hates me at this point because I've had the shake so bad every time I'm getting up and down, I'm, I'm shaking like a leaf. It was just, it was terrible. And one day I was out in the smoke area, just having a cigarette. And next thing you know, I wake up in an ambulance. So I had my first alcohol withdrawal seizure. It took me to the hospital. Uh, I was a fall risk. I had a lady had to sit in there in the room with me all night. I was hallucinating badly. I, I kept seeing her face change. I saw like a snake in the light above it. Somehow my, my fiance, that uh, didn't want anything to do with me. She showed up there. I don't know. If she, I guess she was an emergency contact. I don't know. But she showed up there. After that, they convinced me to go to treatment. So they sent me to a place called Mountain Manor for 28 days. And I tell you what, uh, just like the military, I, mean, I, I do really well in structured environments. Uh, I'm a salesman. I was able to, I'm able to pick up information and learn. I, I was good in school. I can learn information really quickly, and I can regurgitate it back to you. So if you had saw me in treatment in that 28 days, like I knew all the answers. I was the star pupil. I was always participating. I mean, I got, I got certificates throughout the time there that said like these positive observations of how good I was doing. If you'd have looked at that, you just you just said, "Man, this guy's really got it. He he he's going to turn himself around here." I got out of there. I knew the whole time I was not going to quit drinking. Um, I just thought I was going to be able to maybe possibly better manage it. But first, I had to get back out to the fiance and back out to Perry Hall and get my things, get all my get all my stuff back, get the house, get the girl back, and and kind of get regrouped. And 
So I did the, some of the things they told me to do. I went and I got into a recovery house. She wouldn't let me back home yet. So I went to a recovery house. I got a sponsor. I got a home group. Um, I was going to meetings, did doing my 90 and 90. And, you know, I was learning some things and I, I was hearing what people were saying, but I was just putting on a show really is what I was doing. I was going into meetings and I'd hear somebody share some really, just really slick, something, something that sounded really good and uh, like a good salesman, right? I would take that and I'd take it to another meeting and I would say that and it would sound really, really good. Um, and I, I worry about sharing that like now in this journey I'm in, right. Because I feel like people might think that that's the same, right. But it's, it's really not, this is just part of where I was at to kind of show you where I've come. You know, I, I was, I was just putting on the show. I was checking all the boxes for the fiance to try to get her back. So, uh, I wasn't really working the steps. I was telling her I was, I was telling my sponsor I was, and I was just trying to put the show on until one day, uh, it was like new year's Eve. It was my son and and me, um, I actually was doing his mom a favor. She let me stay at the house with my son. She was going to go out for New Year's Eve since I wasn't drinking. And uh, I was going to stay there with him. And we were going to watch the ball drop, give her a chance to go out. Well, my fiance, I, I had asked if she would, she didn't know I was only right down the street. She thought I was still like 25 minutes away. So I asked if she was going to come see me for New Year's. And she said, no, she was going to go out to this bar with Anne, her friend. And I didn't believe that. I thought she was going to go out with some other guy and she didn't want anything to do with me. And uh, just that still that stinking thinking was in, in my head. You know, I hadn't worked on anything with myself. I just took the alcohol away. And, uh, you know, somebody told me you can take the rum out of a fruitcake, but you still have a fruitcake. So that's all I did. I removed the alcohol inside. I'm still the same person. So I proceeded to at 1145 at night to pack my nine-year-old son up and put him in the car, drive down the street to this, this bar and leave him in the car in the parking lot. And I was going to rush in. I rushed into this bar thinking I'm going to catch her with this guy. And, uh, I run past, get past the bouncers. I run in there and she's with a, a big crowd of people. I don't even know who she's with at this point, but I start yelling making this big scene, slap her drink out of her hand. And, uh, you know, this whole thing goes down and this is sober. This is not a drop of alcohol in me, which is, is, is crazy. Right. Um, I get out of there. Finally, I go back to my car and my son is bawling his eyes out. Uh, we were supposed to watch that ball drop and, uh, the front of this bar is all glass windows. And so inside it's a sports bar with the TVs and stuff. So he, said to me, he said, we missed the ball drop. And I attempted to lie, thinking he didn't really know what he was talking about. I said, no, 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 we didn't miss it. Yeah, we didn't miss it. And uh, uh, he had saw it on the TV right through the window from the parking lot by himself. He sat in that car by himself and watched that ball drop because I'm in there trying to catch her with somebody. And uh, so that I felt very, very small. And when his mom found out, I felt even smaller. And, and you know, I felt like a real piece of piece of trash. Um, and so I went back to that recovery house that next day from my son's mom's house. And uh, I get there and the rest of my stuff that was left at the fiance's house uh, is now on the porch of the recovery house I live in. So at this point now, it's all over. We're done. Uh, there's no trying to get her back and get back out into the house of Perry Hall. So in my mind now, I don't need any of this. I don't need to put this show on anymore. I don't need the sponsor. What I need to do is I need to get out of this recovery house. I've done saved up some money now because I've been working. And so I, what I need to do is I need to get my own place. 
I need to go get my own place because I can't handle these people in, in this house anymore. So I move as far away as I possibly like to where my sponsor couldn't even, if he wanted to come pick me up from meetings, so I moved to this, this ridiculous amount of distance away and get this little apartment like from a private owner. So I get this apartment by myself. So at this point, I'm now living by myself, no meetings, no sponsor, no nothing. And uh, it wasn't long. It wasn't long before the, the alcohol knocked again on the door and I, I started drinking. I was by myself. Nobody was there. Nobody could tell what I was doing. So I just started and I was like, I'll just start. I'll just drink a little bit. I can manage it now. If I've had, I had 11 months at this point with no drinking. I was like, there's absolutely, if I went 11 months, I can certainly just drink on the weekend and not drink the five days of the week and then drink again on the weekend. And I can now manage it better. I know how to do this better. And that's not the case. I started drinking right back to the way I was drinking daily. It progressed right back to where it left off. And I ended up finding another girl, moved in with her very quickly. And I was right back to the same, same thing. She had kids close to my son's age. I put him in there and we're all implanted in and we're now a family and we're doing that thing. And, um, much of the same, same thing till about a year in, she gave me the ultimatum to go to treatment or, or get, get out. At this point, I had, I had another I had another seizure while I was working. I had another alcoholic withdrawal seizure, so I was out of work at this point. So I'm not working, and uh, she told me that I need to go to treatment or I need to get out. And so I said, "Well, you know what? I'm good at treatment, and you know, you're probably right. I probably could use another 28 days to kind of kind of get myself back together and get get feeling right again." And uh, so here's what I'm going to do: I'm going to go in, and this is. So this is, you know, I'm, I'm at about 22 months right now as far as sobriety is concerned, coming up on two years. So this day she tells me that I need to get out or go to treatment. And we call and I find out they're going to have a bed two days from now. It's on a Tuesday. And that was going to be on on uh, June 8th, 2021. So we're talking June 6th. She says to me, OK, that's great that you got a bed two days from now, but uh, you need to get out now. You have to go now. And she put me in a hotel. Until I was able to go to, uh, she had had that much of my shit, you know, been that fed up with my shit that she uh, put me in a hotel, told me I had to get out now and wait to go to treatment. She bought me a big bottle of vodka. So I sat, here I am, a little over 22 months ago. I'm sitting on the edge of this bed in a hotel, a handful of pictures she gave me telling me to take them in with her so I can, you know, and I threw them at her and told her she didn't love me and had this little duffel bag full of my belongings and and a big bottle of vodka. And there I sat, I sat there drinking and I uh, went to treatment on Tuesday. And the plan was I'm going to do this 28 days, just like I did before. And I'm going to come out and I'm going to hide it better from her. Uh, there was no plan of stopping drinking whatsoever at all. About halfway through that process, she says to me, um, yeah, well, I don't think 28 days is going to be long enough. So here I am again. Now, now I'm in a, a pickle, right? Because now if I get out after 28 days, I'm homeless because she says I can't come back there. So I decided to do an extension. They allowed me to extend for another 24 days. So I call her and say, hey, look, how's the house 52 days? They're going to give me a 24-day extension. And she tells me that that's going to be okay. Well, while I'm there at this treatment center, they're bringing in AA meetings. Uh, pretty much every every other day we're getting an AA meeting there. I started listening to all these people, man, and, and they're all saying the same thing. They're all talking about higher power. They're all talking about how how they do it and working these steps and doing these things and all the things that I heard before when I was doing the meetings, doing all that. And uh, none of it, I didn't really, again, I wasn't ready to stop. 
But I do remember one thing one of those guys said, and it sticks to me with me to this day. He said, the first thing you put before your recovery will be the second thing that you lose. And that stuck with me because that's all I was doing. I was just trying to get all my stuff back, and I wasn't actually putting anything into my recovery. So I'm doing the, the rest of those 24 days there, and I don't know what changed or what happened inside of me. I still don't, to this day, know. I, don't, I didn't have like an aha moment. but. I decided to go out and go to a long-term facility for three months, three more months. Cause I heard somebody say that if you make it past six months, you got a pretty good shot of maybe, maybe possibly getting it. And so I said, you know what, I'll go out here and I'll, I'll do a, at least another three. Cause it was a three to six month program. And while I was out there, they brought in meetings every single night, every night we had eight o'clock, we had meetings in there. And I just more and more and more, I just kept hearing this, this message over and over and over again. And I said, you know what, all these people can't be wrong. There's no way that everybody's coming in here saying the same thing and there's no merit to it. So I decided to try to prove it wrong. Right. I, somebody told me, go ahead and prove it wrong. If you don't think it works, prove it wrong. And if it doesn't work, hey, you know what? They'll refund your misery for you. And so I started to start, started to take advice. I started to get into it. I started to learn. I started to ask questions and, and absorb the information. And I got out of that program with about five and a half months under my belt at this point with no drinking. And I had actually been doing some work on self. I broke up with that girlfriend that, that gave me the ultimatum, broke up with her while I was in there. So at this point I'm on my, on my own and I applied to work in treatment. I got out directly out of treatment. I went and started working as a PHP house manager at a treatment facility, managing one of their houses uh, where people come in, to treatment for their first 21 day experience with, with treatment coming right off the streets. And people thought I was crazy, man. Are you going to, you're going to go put yourself right in that five and a half months out. You're going to put that much responsibility and, and pressure and, and be having people coming right off the streets with, and I'll tell you right now, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because since then, if you'd have told me sitting on that bed, here's what's happened since then. If you'd have told me sitting on that bed in that hotel room, right. Uh, if you just sat next to me and said, you know what? You follow some suggestions and you do what these people tell you to do, right? And you work this program the way it's designed. You don't try to reinvent the wheel. You just follow the recipe that's already been figured out for you. And in less than two years, you're going to not only work in treatment, right? But you're going you're gonna to have a career in treatment. You're going to start a business that helps other recovering alcoholics and addicts that are in treatment. You're going to go to school and be, you know, uh, let's see, four weeks away from completing your schooling to become a substance abuse counselor. And you're the aftercare coordinator at a treatment facility you've been working at for the past year. I would have told you, I would have laughed. There was no way that was anywhere near on my radar. There was no, there was no, I would have told you you were high, you know, or, or drunk at this point. But looking at it now is that's all that happened is I just started, stopped thinking for myself for a minute, right? Because this smart guy had gotten himself, as I was so smart, I landed myself in treatment, rehabs and seizures and all these things, right? And kicked out of two houses. And I had nothing to show for anything for myself. And so I decided to do something different. Start listening to people. Start telling people I don't know what I'm doing and asking them how they did it. And that's all I had to do. And I started working steps. I've now worked all 12 steps, you know, and I've actually worked those steps. I didn't breeze through them to check boxes. I worked them thoroughly. I now have the privilege of taking other men through those same steps. Um, and they trust me. They trust me to do so because I, I don't just talk to talk. You know, I, my feet match my mouth today. I'm not just putting on some show for everybody. 
I live this program. I live those steps. Those steps have literally changed my life. And those steps are not just, they have nothing to do with alcohol and drugs because drugs and alcohol is not my problem. The thing between my ears is my problem. It's the way that I think. It's the way that I behave. Right. So I had to change that. And that's what those steps do. Those steps taught me how to be a better person overall, how to be a better friend, a better employee, a better father, you know, and not just be some superficial, egotistical jerk that I was. And uh, I am truly thankful today for for my addiction, honestly, for my alcoholism, because had I just kept going through and never realized I had that and never got put into these situations, my higher power put me exactly where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to go through all those situations to be put there to be able to go to treatment and learn about my disease. And now to be able to take that information and go share it with other people and show them how to do it um, is just truly a blessing. And I, and I love it. That's why service is so much a part of my of my recovery process. So um, I'm truly always going to be grateful uh, for AA and all that it's done for me um, and for recovery in general. And for those reasons, I'll keep coming back. Thank you, Nick. <sighs> I am impressed that you had such a tough upbringing but you still excelled so much in school yeah and you said several times that you are really good at structure so i wonder if it makes you feel safe yeah i i I don't know like i've never i just know that i do i do well in a structured environment when i know kind of what's going on and how it works and i can i can adapt to it very quickly well, you were a good match for the military. So I want to thank you for your service and thank you for sharing that piece with us. And thank you for all of the suffering you did to be of service. Absolutely. You have a 12, 13 year old son now? Uh, he is going to be 12 in August. Okay. And has he seen this change in you? Is he, ex- you guys have a different kind of relationship? Oh, my God. Yeah. So. Uh, that's, I could go a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent the past, I just recently about two months ago, got my own apartment. It's a one bedroom, one bath apartment. Right. But it's mine. Nobody's going to kick me out of it except this the landlord, obviously, if I don't, <laughs> if I don't pay, but I, I hadn't been able to have him before going in. I mean, I've always been in his life and been a part of his life regardless. Cause I didn't have a dad growing up. So even though I was an alcoholic, I was always involved very much with my son and who have to go away for five and a half months to an inpatient uh, treatment and then live in recovery houses and things where he couldn't stay with me. He went from staying with me four nights a week to staying with me. Not at all. Just seeing him maybe for a few hours on a Saturday or one day on the weekend. And I started to think he had lost hope in me. Honestly, he didn't seem very interested in hanging out with me. There were times he, you know, kind of just avoided it being with me, but now that I've got the place back, he stays with me three nights a week. Um, I see him, Every day except Saturday, so I'm either dropping him off or picking him up from school because I have a car now. We have a great relationship. I have him in therapy. I'm in therapy, so we both are doing that on our own terms. Um, but the therapist knows exactly my part that I played in it You know, when he did his intake with them. So it's been great. We, def- we definitely have a much better relationship, and I'm much more prepared to be able to help him too. Does he like basketball? 
he just not he's not athletic. He's <laughs> <laughs> not one athletic bone in his body. Uh, he got his mom and me's artistic ability. Did not get any of the athleticism. Got it. Got it. He's a gamer. Oh, <laughs> aren't they all? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so you had mentioned starting a business. Did I catch that right? Yeah. Do yeah. you want to? Is it recovery based? Do you want to talk about it? I didn't know that going into this. Yeah, it is. Uh, so I started a company called Second Life. And so what it started as, well, the vision behind it was to raise money and funds and things like that to give people who come into treatment some of the things that treatment doesn't provide you. Um, so I realized when I would go into these treatment facilities and things like that, that there was just the little things that, you know, like a haircut, right? Like, you don't know how much that changes somebody, the way somebody feels about themselves, right? So um, getting a haircut or or getting a, a good pair, a nice pair of clothes, not some donation clothes, but getting a new outfit or uh, getting a really good hygiene kit. And not that I wasn't thankful for the things that we were given. It, it hits different when a person gets, you know, like a, a real rag and a good razor that they can shave with, not one that barely cuts anything. So I created some merchandise with Second Life on it, and it just started off with like 25 T-shirts. And I took them to a function, and I mean, I sold out of them like immediately, like quickly. And all the money was going to, to back to I work in treatment. So I was able to take those funds and do things for people coming into treatment buy literature for our recovery houses, so big books and things like that, and basic texts. So I started that way. The The true uh, goal of it, I'm getting ready to actually open up a, uh, a nonprofit that'll be linked with uh, my LLC to be able to get some grants and scholarships. I'm going to be opening up my first recovery house um, in like July or August. Uh, the big plan is to open up a 3.1 treatment house. That'll come about a year down the road after that. But there's a gap right now between treatment. What I've learned is that you go to a PHP or an inpatient for 21 or 28 days, and then you are sent out back into freedom, essentially. Yeah, you have IOP. You go there for you know three or four hours a day, four days a week. But there's really no – they go out to this house, and they have somebody there leading them – that only has maybe a couple more weeks of sobriety than they do. They're still trying to figure out how to recover themselves. So I'm going to start a program called Life Enrichment and Recovery Network. It's a LEARN program, and it's going to issue temporary sponsors and peer specialists to help the people that come out of PHP to kind of get them um, a little more set up foundation under them when they come out and help them to transition better. It's very obvious that you're not faking it this time. No, absolutely not. I'm, 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 I'm invested big time. Like this is, I found, I found like my true, like, this is what I, I had always been looking for purpose, you know, and I was really good at, I was good at sales and I was doing this, but I, before I went into treatment, I was going to go to culinary school. Cause I like cooking. So I was like, all right, maybe i maybe I should do that. I'm going to open up food trucks and I've been looking for this purpose. And you know, I, I've since went back and thanked the the fiance that gave me the ultimatum to get out or go to treatment and then told me that it wasn't going to be long enough. I went back to pick up the rest of my stuff. I've, I've thanked her. She's been at my celebration for my first year. She is impressive. Did she? Just a little she, bit you shared about her. I'm like, well, she's not messing around. And she was not. She set some boundaries. And I, I, I'm grateful for that, actually, because it has pushed me. And you call it whatever, you know, maybe my higher power had some some, some to do with that, right? You mm-hmm. kind of put, I always say my higher power wears skin, 
right? I don't need to know what my higher power looks uh-huh. like. I just need to know that it, it wears skin. It comes in the form of her. It came in the form of text at the facilities I worked at. And that's what I, I look at it as now is there's people put here to kind of push me in the right direction. But now that I'm not drunk and intoxicated, I can pay attention and I'm locked in and I can see where I go. You know, all I have to do is just walk through the doors. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? So I did the exact same thing you did. I was like, I'm going to prove you guys wrong that this doesn't work. <laughs> what was it about the pro? Like, why did it seem so unbelievable? Because I just, I guess because drinking was just so ingrained. Like, how do you not, like, I did everything drinking. I was like, there's, you're, you're telling me I got to, how am I going to eat crabs without Corona? How am I going to go to a, a Orioles game or, or, or a Ravens football game and not tailgate and do these things, right? And it, like I said, it was so normalized in my life growing up that I just didn't think I really needed to stop drinking, right? And that this program was for other people that really kind of needed it. I was going to outthink it. I was going to figure it out because that's what I do. And the one thing that kind of honestly really hindered me, my biggest barrier in all of it was that everybody kept talking about this higher power. And I know a lot of people say that they struggle with that. You know what I mean? But I, I, a hundred percent, I, I did, even though I went to Catholic school, I only went for like the first like three years of school or whatever. Once my grandfather and my grandmother split up, we stopped doing the whole church thing. And I, I just was not a, I'm not a religious person. And so I didn't, I had a hard time distinguishing the difference between religion and spirituality. And so when everybody kept saying, in order for this to work for you, you have to have this higher power. And that was like, you have to do this, have to have it. I didn't think there was any way for me to have that. And so I figured, well, this isn't going to work for me because I, I, I can't get down with the higher power thing. I don't even know how you, what it means to turn your will over to anything. Um, and surrender to a Marine, a combat veteran Marine after surrender. No, that's not for me, but I did. And I'm glad I did. <laughs> I truly am. I'm so grateful. I literally had dog tags made that I wear every day. Um, and they say honest, open-minded and willing on them. Because I wore dog tags in the Marines, right? And when I went to battle, those were my dog tags, and those would be used to distinguish me if I were to to, to perish, right, or to identify me. And um, so these, you know, this this recovery thing, this alcoholism, my disease is trying to take my life too. So it's the new new war that I'm I'm a part of. And so those dog tags remind me every day I put those on that I have to have those three things: that honesty, open mindedness, and willingness are the pillars to my recovery. And if I maintain those three things, then I'll, I'll, I'll keep living. That's very poetic. And also really raw and kind of sad to think about. Is there anything, I, I just want to thank you again for your service. I just cannot imagine. And I'm glad that you're working through all of that and, um, I'm glad that you're a um, former Marine in recovery as an example of surrender and acceptance and hope. So yeah, acceptance, <laughs> a big one. God, there's so many big ones that. Oh, no, no. God. I yeah. know, but sincerely, thank you. Anything that you perhaps left out or that you're thinking of now that you would like to share? 
you know, if this is to a newcomer, you know, if there's a newcomer listening or anybody really, but especially the newcomer who doesn't really believe it can work or doesn't think that it's going to work or thinks they have to figure it out. Like you don't have to figure anything out with this. It's already been figured out. It's, you know, I, I use the analogy, like if you've ever baked cookies, right. You, you know, I, I, I baked chocolate chip cookies, but I couldn't tell you the recipe. Right. So if I want to bake chocolate chip cookies, I'm going to go get the recipe. I'm going to do exactly what the recipe tells me to do. Right. I'm not going to try to change it and maneuver it and, and tweak it because I want the cookies quicker. I'm going to turn up the heat and bake it for less time. Right. I'm not going to do those things. I just have to literally follow the recipe exactly the way it says. And at the end, the result will be chocolate chip cookies. Right. So this is no different. This book, the big book or basic tech, whatever, who are, you know, the big book. Right. It has the recipe right in it. So all I have to do is literally just follow the recipe. And if I don't understand something in the recipe, then I just ask somebody who does. And it's literally that simple. It's just that simple. And, and I think a lot of times we just overcomplicate it, trying to trying to, to control it. And if we just follow the recipe at the end, you got chocolate chip cookies. It is that easy, but they say, you know what, it's a, it's a simple program for complicated people. Right. So <laughs> I know, I know. And I think you summed it up with, you started listening and you asked for help and then you took that help. So I would, I would add an E to your, so there's willingness, honesty, and openness, but there's also like the actual effort or energy that you need to put into the process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always think about it this way. It's like the honesty part, right? I look at honesty, open-minded, and willingness as like the first three steps, really. You know, um, you you look at honesty and you think honest, like, okay, tell the truth. No, like that real honest, not that surface-level stuff. Like I had to get honest with myself because I'm not going to be honest with anybody else out there if I'm lying to myself, mm. you know? And then came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, right? So at that point, you know, I had to be open-minded enough to one, think that there was a power greater than me and two, that there was a, a, a higher power and three, that I was even insane. Right. You know, and then, you know, step three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So we made a decision to turn our will and our life over. Right. So I had to become willing. I had to become willing to do that. Right. And that and if I'm if I'm becoming willing, that means I'm going to do the work at this point. So that's kind of how I look at those those three things. And that's how I explain them to my sponsees is why those are those are very, very important pillars. You could keep going and say four is the actual effort. You need to put pen to paper and put in physical effort. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Hey, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I like that. And I didn't realize. Crazy, crazy. That step two tells us we're insane. Yeah. Like what? No, I'm not. I'm a really smart, competent individual who can learn things really well. Like, but I'm not, I'm not insane. No, you're well, I'm alcoholically insane. I do insane things. And they say that insanity is, you know, the, the definition is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And I disagree. I say that it's doing the same thing, knowing what the result is going to be and still doing it anyway. Yes. <laughs> like, that is the alcoholic's insanity. That is insane right there. You know the outcome and you do it anyway. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to hide it better this time. I, <laughs> yeah. gonna, I will figure it out. This, this, this formula will work. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I, I, um, I'm just 
unbelievably blessed that there are a story where a child suffered so much and came to be such a useful, hopeful person for the world. And I'm just deeply grateful for you. Thank you. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.